Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Um, good morning, Westside. Good morning, Battersea. Good morning, Balham. Good morning to myself, listening to the podcast on Tuesday, cringing. Um, my name is Philip, and just as a little domestic insight into my life, this has genuinely happened, you know, just now, I wasn't on the script. So, you know, Adam came up and talked about the men's curry night, and I whispered to Jen, like, I don't know what I'm doing that night, and she said, that's my birthday. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Um, anyway, running joke, I can't remember birthdays, including Jen's. Um, now we recover. So um, it is always a gift to lead our worship in the word. And here is my opening question for us, just to get us moving, is what is the best news you have heard recently? What's the best news you've heard recently? Not a trick question. Um, take a moment, I'd love to have an actual answer in your head. If you're interested, for those who know what this means, my answer would be basball. <laughs> but what is the best news you have heard recently? Take that answer, put it to a side, you're going to need it in a little bit. But we are at week four of our nine-week teaching series in the book of Ephesians, uh, letters to the Ephesians, yeah, known by that clever shorthand, Ephesians. And yet probably it wasn't actually written only to the Ephesians, but a range of churches, including Ephesus, in the area of Asia Minor. Now, I know you've all been cruelly deprived of Bible limericks for too long now. So I've been given you the biggest gift you can ask for. And not one, not two, but three. Wow. Yeah. Three limericks to catch us all up as quick as possible on the content that Steve, that Karen, that Christine, that Lucy, and that Jose have shared with us over the first three weeks. They're going to be on the screen, so you're welcome to use them in your prayer and worship time this week. So the first one, introduction to Ephesians, so the overall sense goes maybe like this. There once was a disciple named Paul who understood the gospel better than all. A letter to Asia Minor for teaching and reminder helped the church know its identity and call. That's right, it's good. <laughs> Second one, which is Ephesians uh, 1, 3 to 14. Paul starts with a flowing and elegant picture of which there is little like it in Scripture. Using little punctuation, he makes his determination that in our good news, Jesus is a central fixture. Less than, less than enthusiasm about the second one. <laughs> I was really happy with that. And then last week, at our respective individual sites, uh, we heard something like this. Then Paul speaks powerfully in what he prays for, filled with love or for the church and a Christ-soaked awe. That to feel God's affection needs Holy Spirit connection to know Jesus' power and hope in our core. You good? Shall I just sit down now? Yeah, no, no chance. So this morning we are looking at the first part of what is called chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And it's important to remember that Paul did not write 
these things in verses. These were added later in for our help to reference the content of the scriptures. But he wrote this letter like all letters of flowing prose, interconnected with one another. And Paul's intention for us right now would be to remember that, to take these verses, to connect them with what has been said in the weeks before, and to connect them with what we're going to hear in the following weeks. And I will do my best this morning to aid you in that process. So let us begin by reading these verses together. If you want to get out a phone or a Bible, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, they'll be on the slide as well. I will read them out. Um, yeah, you never know how small. They look much bigger on your screen at home. So um, let me read them out. But if you have a Bible, please follow along. So he says, as for you, let's stop there. So this will take a while if I stop every three words, but I promise I won't. But it's really important to remember who the as for you is. And the as for you, first of all, is not an individual. Paul is not writing to you, Raylene or Joel, in Battersea or Leanne or Kelsey in Westside, or Jono or Julia here, and I really hope those other people are actually in their church today. But Paul is writing to us, or them in the first instance, but us as a people, it's a collective, it's a plural. Everything in this letter, and everything we'll talk about this morning, next week, and the previous weeks, is communal and collective. And that collective he's talking to is the collective who he has made clear already, the collective who are chosen, redeemed, blessed in Christ and spirit-filled. And it's important to remember that as we start this passage, remembering where Paul began, a declaration of God's love for us, his action for us, and our collective new identity in Jesus. So let's start again. Let's continue. We'll go all the way through this time, I promise. So he says this, and you, and I'm going to add a few little extra words just to remind us of that collective element. And you all were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you all once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived once in our passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of humankind. But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us all, even when we together were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you all have been saved. And God raised us up together with him, seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you together have been saved through faith. It is not by our collective own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we together are God's workmanship or handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared us to do beforehand, that we together should walk in them. So what are you going to draw from this this morning? Um, in... In, uh, in true honor of someone who's very influential on my faith and teaching who passed away last month, I'm going to tell you up front the three things that we learn from this. We learn what God saved us from. We learn who God, how, sorry, we learn how God has saved us. And we learn what we are saved for. We learn what God has saved us from. We learn how God has saved us. And we learn what we are saved from. So let's go with what God saves us from. There is actually three answers. 
um, in this passage, which we can observe and won't go into too much detail this morning. We can see on the screen there, we are saved from a state, a state of death in our transgressions and sins. We are saved from a personified power, this reference to the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And we are saved from judgment of our own choices when we followed and do follow the cravings of our self-focused desires, which is the meaning of our flesh. And I'll be honest, it's passages like this um, that make me want to preach on sin more. When Viv knew I had this pressured passage, she said, you love talking about sin. And I was like, it's true, I do. But not because I love sin as an idea or I'm, I'm unhealthily focused on it, but because Scripture talks about sin in so much more powerful breadth than we really think about it. We so often narrowly define it as behavior, and absolutely it is about and includes behavior. But as we can see here from Paul, it's about so much more. It's something we are trapped in. It's something that there's a personalized force involved in. And the reason I won't go into too much detail, though, about it this morning is that actually this is not a major statement from Paul. In this context, this Paul, uh, this Paul, this passage is going to primarily but not exclusively a Jewish audience. Well, there's a lot of Jews in the audience who are reading this or hearing this. And Paul wasn't saying anything to them particularly new or controversial. He wasn't reminding them, uh, they didn't reminding of sin and that they needed saving. Because throughout the Old Testament, we see at various points, people recognized their sin, their decisions to live selfishly, to pursue violence, to oppress their neighbors, to worship created things, and also to lament that behavior in those around them that was affecting them. And their response when it did happen was not just a half-hearted repentance, but a falling on their knees, begging God to help them, to save them from their own inability to live mercifully and justly. They got it. They got the reality, the sin inside them and outside them, and they needed God to save them. However, it is too often us, in 2023, encouraged by the cultural waters that we swim in, we have decided that we find this idea of sin either offensive or irrelevant or outdated. And too often we resist this notion of it being true, let alone it being good news. And yet sin in this biblical, rich, complex sense of the word that we don't really talk about much has so much explanatory power for our lives that we experience. When sin, as Paul is saying here, is a state, when sin is something we're stuck in, when sin is an active power we can be captivity to, when it is our self-oriented choices we make ourselves, it is no wonder that our world globally, nationally, in the church, in our families, in ourselves, is not as it feels like it ought to be. Because it's not. Our pain is real, and we need help. And this is the first thing Paul is telling and reminding this church around uh, Ephesians in this area of Asia Minor, that what Jesus has saved us from, sin in all its forms and all its meanings. What is the best news you've heard recently? Who's having fun? Good. Second thing, we can learn how God saves us. And this is very simple indeed. We are saved by God's initiative. Nothing more, nothing less. In these verses, Paul puts it like this. But God, being rich in mercy, his character, because of his great love, his affection, 
with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so nothing to do with us, made us alive together with Christ, by grace, his action, you have been saved. And again, even within Ephesians, this isn't new. He's not saying anything that would have surprised him. What Paul is doing here is condensing the entirety of the first part of the chapter into a few lines. He's, when he says made alive in Christ in these verses, he's referring back to the 202-word non-stop, no-punctuation poetic opening that Karen taught us about in week two. You should go listen to that. This is how we're saved. By God's initiated action. So let me just add a few additional comments that we can see from this passage that might colour this in a little more. The first is that grace is not just a byword for love. We can see that Paul says God's love initiated the action and the action is grace. So what is love? I'm not going to... That's a big question. Didn't hear that outside. Um, perhaps... Perhaps, just for this morning, we can say it this way. God's love is his unconditional and unchangeable heart-quickening affection towards us as his beloved. Any of us, uh, which I am not, parents in the room, know a little of what this means because it's how you may feel about your children some of the time. So what then is God's grace? Again, God's grace, I'm not trying to simplify it, but can be defined in a range of ways. But one way to make sense of this in this context then is God's grace is his love made for us, made tangible in his behavior. When Paul says it is by grace we have been saved, he isn't just saying again it is by love. He means all those active verbs that we read about in chapter 1. Um, Dallas Willard, who's one of my spiritual mentors, I know we talk about him a lot, and if you want to know why, come and ask me. But here's a quote which actually Karen completely independently was going to use, and I'm just going to use it again because it's so helpful. And he defines grace as God acting in our life to do what we cannot do on our own. Grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do on our own. And what we can learn from Ephesians here, so far affirmed by Paul, that to rely on God's grace, to be saved by it, is more than simply relying on his affection towards us. It is relying on his still active power, motivated by love. God's grace to save is here and now. And the second thing that's helpful we can think about this grace is Paul has a very interesting, uh, subtle, but intentional inclusion in verses 8 and 9, where he says, For by grace you have been saved by faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a lot of works, so that no one may boast. It's an interesting little addition there from Paul. What's he doing? There's going to be a lot more to come on this in the later parts of Ephesians, but let me put a thought in your head as a seed. Paul is already telling us that part of the purpose of being saved through grace is unity in the community of Christians called the church. Whereas meritocracy can breed competition, pride, and division, grace was chosen to breed peace, humility, and unity. You tracking? 
saved by grace. What is the best news you have heard recently? So what then is the third thing that Paul is showing us from this passage? It is we can learn what God has saved us for. Paul puts it this way, continuing on, but then seeing where he, he goes next. For grace, well, by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not by undoing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so no one may boast. For we, has, we are his workmanship, again, also translated as handiwork. As a little side note, the word underneath that in Greek is the word we get poetry from. We are his workmanship, we are his poetry. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us to do beforehand, and that we should walk in them. So what, again, can we notice here from what Paul is saying, why he's saying these things? First one is repetition. He's playing with a phrase here. says it three times. Um, Someone call it out. Should be obvious. I'll put it in bold. (laughs) Works. Julia didn't get that, apparently. Um, works, exactly. Paul is playing here with the word works. And here's my own version of what he is saying to hopefully make it um, a little clearer. We are neither saved by good works nor from good works. We are saved for good works because our good works become a witness to God's good work. We are neither neither saved by good works nor from good works. We are saved for good works because our good works become a witness to God's good work. What is really interesting to me about this passage um, and sort of was a new thing to me as I studied it is in this passage, um, our response to grace in good work does not actually first and foremost come through gratitude. Although I'm not saying that's a something that's false, but in this passage, it's, it's not an overflow of thanks that Paul is talking about. Our good works happen because we have been recreated in Christ. And therefore, these good works become a witness to the God who is creating all of the world in the coming of his kingdom. And are these good works an idea that God has sort of made up recently? Definitely not. Paul puts it this way. God prepared them in advance for us to do. This may well be a reference straight back to Genesis 1, to the, hu- the mandate humanity has to look after and steward creation. There is a recreation going on here. So what are these good works? Again, so much more is going to be said in the later weeks, but let me just say this. It does not mean super special actions out there by some Christians. It looks, at, it looks like how we parent, how we respond to the climate crisis, how we study at uni, how we lead at church, how we behave at work, how we celebrate our birthdays, how we rest. These works and how we do them would be the evidence of God's poetry, recreation, handiwork within us. And the second thing we can see from here, if we zoom out a little bit from the whole passage that we've read, Paul is also doing something very intentional as well. 
And just as a really quick, quick side note, if you didn't know, and I didn't know this until a few years ago in some of the studying I've been doing, if you didn't know the Bible is some of the most incredible literature in how it's designed, then, then that's something for you to learn and explore. It's absolutely incredible how these things have been put together. And here's just one example. So we can see, right, we read right at the start in verses 1 to 2, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince or the power of the air. And the word there for uh, walked is a Greek word, peripateo. And then we jump right to the end, which we have just read, which is verse 10. And he says, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Who wants to guess what that word is? Peripateo. Yes, it's on the screen. What Paul is saying here, this is a full replacement of one internal life and lifestyle with another. From spiritual death to spiritual life. From behaving as a response to spiritual death to behaving in response to spiritual life. This final stage of this teaching from Paul and what we are saved for is that we have now been recreated in the Father, so by the Father, in Christ, empowered by the Spirit, to take up our role as citizens of his kingdom. Free from the state of sin, free from the power of sin, and free from the judgment of sin. So how might we summarize this? We could say it this way. As a community, we now have the identity, the calling, and the power in Christ to become active symbols of God's recreation of the world in every aspect of our lives. As a community, which includes us as individuals, but also as a community, as a church, here in Balham, here in Battersea, here in Westside, we now have the identity, the calling, and the power in Christ to become active symbols of God's recreation of the world in every aspect of our lives. Alternatively, you could say, God is in a transformation business, and we get to join in. How are we doing? Good. Friends, what is being presented here is what we call the gospel. As Christians, what we call the gospel it is being presented throughout all of Ephesians, in fact, the majority of the Bible. And the word gospel we use in Christian culture and, and language is the Greek word evangelion. It is the word where we get words like evangelical or evangelism. What does evangelion mean? It means good news. One more time. What is the best news you have heard recently? I'm going to invite the worship bands up at Westside, at Battersea, here at Balham, as we move into how we might respond to what we've heard and learned about this morning. I think for those of us who are Christians in the room, the problem is with this good news, and I know it's a cliche, but I'm fully in this camp. We too often see it as old news. It's something that is static. It happened before. It's factored in. It's just part of the background. Or I dare say, it's just part of the future. This is so wrong. This good news is now... 
This good news is active. The gospel is good news every day. And as I've been saying, it's news today because God is freeing us from sin today. His love is being manifest in active grace today. And we can be formed and called into reflecting his work today as we seek his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. If you're listening to this and maybe you're not a Christian or you're not sure where you stand with Jesus or faith or Christianity, then you're so welcome with us. And I would just say here is our, here are God's offer to you that maybe, just maybe, if you're need, in need of good news in your life, Jesus might be something to take another look at because he might be the best news you've ever heard. But if you're a Christian here, <laughs> I have a more gut-level punch for you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. And I genuinely, I, I hope this will keep some of you up at night wrestling in prayer. <laughs> I've been thinking about it for weeks and weeks and weeks. If the, <laughs> if the gospel isn't the best news we've heard every single day of your life, then you've either not understood it or you're not paying enough attention. I didn't say that as judgment because it's absolutely not it and I'm going to control myself and not go on another mini-sermon. But it's an invite. But it's true. If the gospel is not the best news we have heard every single day of our lives, then we've not understood it. We're not paying enough attention. I'm going to end by um, offering you a formation practice as is my obsession. Um, if God has spoken to you or does any of this has resonated, something you can do if you choose this week. And I want to leave you with a prayer that I've uh, written. It's one of my own um, kind of collection and armory of, of prayer practices. And it is a prayer I wrote to um, a couple of years ago now to try and get the whole gospel into me. It's four variations on what's called the Jesus Prayer. Um, and when I do it with my, um, my homemade prayer beads, I've shown my prayer beads before. I have homemade ones now. It's like come the graduation of a Jedi once you've made your own prayer beads. <laughs> <clears throat> and I repeat them seven times using that practical aid of the bead. I won't say any more about that, but you're welcome to ask me. But I'm just going to invite you as I just read out these lines one by one and only once, not seven times, to ask yourself this question. What might you do to ingrain the good news of God's grace into your daily life so that it becomes slowly and patiently the best news you hear every day? What might you do with a friend, with your family, with your co-workers, with your flatmate, on your own? So I'm going to lead you in this prayer. And when I've finished, I'll hand back to our site leaders who will continue our time of response. Our Father, who art in heaven, be with me today, your beloved.
Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, King of Heaven, teach me today your disciple. Holy Spirit, breath of God, fill me today with your power. And I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards all of us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not in this, only in this age, but also in the age to come. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.